Welcome back to the Futures Green Podcast. Today, we are joined by one of the first dual board certified integrative gynecologists in the United States, Dr. Gersh. She'll be joining us to talk about all things birth control. She taught as an assistant clinical professor at the Keck USC School of Medicine for 12 years, and she's the founder and director of the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. As a globally recognized expert on women's health, she regularly speaks at conferences around the world and is the best-selling author of PCOS SOS. What is the most common form of birth control, and what are the side effects you're seeing as a practitioner? Well, what has been the most prevalent use of a contraceptive is, in fact, still the oral contraceptives known as the pill or the birth control pill. And these have been around for, for many decades and have been modified over the course of the decades. And much of the modifications were for two things. One, to try to control the most common side effect, which was irregular bleeding, sometimes like called breakthrough bleeding. And that still remains a very common problem, but they've tried to create different variations to try to lower the incidence of this irregular bleeding. And then the other reason I think is to keep things often, now it's not really feasible anymore, but during the the day, the heyday, we'll say of developing different birth control pill modifications was to try to keep a type of pill that would be branded so that everything wasn't generic. But so they came up with many iterations of the pill to have variations that would keep it branded. So you could, you know, the the, um, practitioners would only order a particular brand, but now everything has gone generic. Excuse me. So there really aren't um, specific, well, there are very few, very few branded ones. So I would say the most common side effect is irregular bleeding. And then the second is some sort of GI effect, usually like nausea in the beginning, sometimes headaches, sometimes breast tenderness. And I would say that some of these side effects have diminished since they changed some of the formulations. That's some great insight and very interesting to hear about the role of whether or not the branding of it and now how it's all turned pretty much to generic at this point. And I'm sure the patents have a role to play with that as well. Yes, absolutely. And some of the experimental changes that they put forth actually turned out to be not very useful and they're never used anymore. Um, Changing the level of the hormones throughout the cycle actually often created more bleeding than 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 any benefits. So um, there were a lot of, um, we'll say, trial and errors along the way of developing different birth control pill modifications. That's super fascinating. Our next question, kind of in the same direction, is what, in your opinion, is the healthiest, most holistic approach to birth control? Well, it is a problem I do not have the best solution for because once you understand that the female body is designed for optimal health to be optimally fertile. So anytime you interfere with fertility, you're going to have some impact on overall health, sometimes subtle, sometimes more dramatic. So of course, the best form of birth control would be one that is not always really the best option, depending on how much risk, say, a a woman can take. So, but the best option would be if she had very regular cycles and can use 
looking at her cervical mucus and looking at her cycle and using ovulation predictor kits and things of that sort so that you actually timed, it's like the old fashioned kind of approach of just trying to avoid the most fertile time of the cycle in, and not having intercourse during the, that time, recognizing that the egg is only viable and can only actually be, um, be effective in, in terms of conception during 24 hours. The problem is what the, which 24 hours, you know? So, and the other problem is sperm can live and wait, like lie in waiting for that egg to pop out for several days, um, typically up to five days and rarely even a day or two longer. So you have to actually have a pretty substantial window when you would have abstinence. So the safest, most holistic would be using predictors of all sorts to try to predict when you are most fertile and when you're not, and then using abstinence so that you avoid having intercourse during the fertile times. But there, there can be many accidental pregnancies with that type of an approach. So that's really best for a woman who is just trying to time her pregnancies as opposed to like, absolutely, I cannot be pregnant. That would be like the worst thing that could happen to me. So that would be the most holistic, the most natural, because you're not using any form of chemicals. You're not interfering with hormones in any way. You're not changing the vaginal health or microbiome. So, you know, that would be the best. Now, what would be if you needed to do something that was more effective? Well, then I would say a barrier method. And there are a few out now, um, some old ones like condoms. And, but condoms is today are not like your grandpa's condoms, okay? They have really improved so much in terms of the thinness, the material use, that many men, when they did a survey and they said, you know, what do you think of condoms? They said, I hate them. I hate them. And then when they asked the next question, when's the last time you tried one? It would be like, I don't know. I don't remember. I just like, so it was more like in theory, they hated it. Okay. They really didn't have any experience with the sort of what we'll say modern design and materials of condoms, because now they come in both latex and non-latex for those who have a problem with like an allergy to latex, which is a small but not insignificant number, you know, percentage of people. But we have so many different types and sizes. It's not just a one size fits all anymore. So I would say condoms would be my next favorite. And then there's the old fashioned, which is coming back, at least in my practice, and that is the diaphragm, which is another barrier method, which the female has total control over where it's kind of similar to what would be known that some women may know this as a menstrual disc. So it has um, a like rubber-ish, it's, it's made out of a, like a latex type of material or a silastic material that acts as a barrier and then a sort of firm but flexible sort of a rim. So it fits tightly into the vagina and you use in addition to that you use a spermicidal gel, which you can also use with condoms as sort of a backup as well. So the diaphragm, when used correctly, is not 100%, but it's still very, very good, like at least 95% effective. Condoms used you know, perfectly all the time is about like 98% effective. And then there's a new kid on, in, in town, the gel called Fexi 
which changes the pH. So that can also be used. And some of these can be used together. So you can use more than one barrier method at the same time. And then there's a type that is called the female condom, which is not used very much at all. It's kind of pricey, but it can be very useful in the right situation where it's like um, kind of like rubberish panty kind of thing, which has an, an insert that goes up into the female's vagina. So it kind of covers the whole area. It also can act as an impediment for sexually transmitted infections. So there is this almost you know, ignored female condom as well. So the barrier methods would be the next best if, if they suit the individual and they're actually used. Because when you're talking about a barrier method, there's what is called, it's actually with all of them, but it's most talked about with the, the barriers. And that's use effectiveness and theoretical effectiveness. Theoretical effectiveness is how well does it work if it's used correctly every time, and it's very high for the barrier methods. But then there's use effectiveness, which, but are you really using it and are you using it correctly? And that's where if you say your method is condoms, but you never use them, and then you know the woman becomes pregnant, that's all taken out on the condom. So the use effectiveness for condoms, diaphragms, and so on is on the low end, like 80%. But if you use it correctly all the time, it's really very high. It's not 100% because nothing is, but it's up over 95. That difference between the theoretical value and that of which people are actually reporting is staggering and very <laughs> interesting. Yes. And once you know that when you hear about efficacy, you know, success rates and failures, you need to know what's actually being addressed because if you know you, okay, and you would say, but I know how re responsible I am. And I would always have the male partner use a condom or he isn't getting near me. And I am very good at putting in a diaphragm. The thing about a diaphragm is that you can put it in up to two hours before intercourse. So it doesn't have to be a last minute deal. Okay. So if you have um, a one-on-one -on -one long-term relationship or you're married and you really don't feel you need protection for sexually transmitted infections. And so you don't need to use a condom. You could just use the diaphragm. I mean, if you want even more protection, you use both, of course. But if you use the diaphragm, and then you could even add in some of the, the timing, you know, where you're watching when you're most fertile and you're sort of, so you can combine more than one thing, okay? You can combine three things at once, you know? So there's no rule that says you can only do one modality to try to prevent an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. So with your patients who are seeking some of these non-hormonal birth control options you just talked about, how do you integrate alternative therapies into your practice and how do you help women or any individual who is seeking um, birth control options, how do you help them make informed decisions? And what do women need to know to make an uninformed decision? Well, I talk about informed decision-making in everything in medicine. And so often it's left out. So often a healthcare you know, individual, a specialist in anything that has to do with healthcare, their pro a provider, will say, this is what I want you to do, or what I suggest, or I'm going to prescribe this. And they really never delve into, well, what are the pros and cons? That's what goes into informed decision-making or what we call informed consent. So whatever it is, everyone should know that there are always pros and cons, and nothing is perfect ever. 
So when it comes to contraceptives, I sit down with the patient and I say, okay, let's think about what your risk acceptance level is. You know, do you live somewhere where if you became pregnant by accident, it would be totally a disaster? Well, you know, then we have to do what we have to do. In fact, in some states now, I have read that the incidence of sterilization procedures have dramatically risen and not by people who really wanted to have these procedures done. They just feel like they have no choice because they're so afraid of getting pregnant. So the men are rushing off and they're getting vasectomies and the women are getting tubal ligations because they're just afraid that, you know, what if something fails? Because there's no birth control methods even birth control pills and IUDs, they have failure rates. That's not to say that vasectomies can never fail or tubal ligations can't. It's just that it's lower. You know, you're just reducing your risk when you do these permanent, irreversible procedures. But some people didn't really want to have more kids, but they really weren't ready to take the plunge into a sterilization, but they're, they're doing it anyway because they're afraid. So if someone is in a state where they're just totally afraid of getting pregnant, but they're not ready for something like a permanent sterilization procedure, then, you know, I give them all the options. Of course, I give everyone all the options, but I would probably lean in terms of recommendations. So not only do I, as a, an MD, a healthcare professional, want to give people all of the wide array of options, the pros and cons, but I feel it's my obligation to make a recommendation. I don't want to just say, you know, like here, here are all the things on the menu and then pick whatever you want. I'll, you know, I'll tell you a few, you know, the pros and cons of each one. You know, it's kind of like you go into a restaurant and the waiter says, you know, we have all these wonderful things on the menu, but honestly, today I recommend, you know, beef, you know, stroganoff or something, you know, I recommend this dish. It's just fantastic today. It doesn't mean you have to pick it, but, you know, I feel as the expert in the room that I'm going to, for each individual, based on their unique situation, I will say, in my opinion, this is probably the best choice for you for the following reasons. So I will always do that, you know, and so that the, the patient knows what I think, but that doesn't mean they have to pick that. They, it's their right to choose whatever option or no option that, um, that she wants to have. So I, I just go through the entire array and I'll say, what are your priorities? You know, are you focused more on what's safest or what's most efficacious or what has the least side effect profile? So I need to understand the priorities of each patient so that I can not only provide the entire array of options, but also then provide an expert opinion of what I think would be the best choice for her, and then she'll decide. It seems like you are truly a member of the patient's team and going above and beyond from what I'm sure some practitioners do engage in where they're not really having those open conversations, exploring all of those options. So that's just phenomenal how individualized and personal you make it with your patients. Well, these are huge decisions that can have repercussions for the entire remainder of a person's life. And I am, I would say, fortunate, but of course, you create your own fortune in terms of your environment and making your own choices as a healthcare professional. But I made the choice quite a number of years ago that I would create long appointments. So this is not something that you can do, obviously, in a five, six, seven minute visit. How is that possible? So I have long appointments. They're 
rarely under 30 minutes. Occasionally people just coming in for a little recheck and then we make it like 20 minutes. But um, usually they're 30 minutes for sort of routine things. And then for longer and exams, they could be 60 or even 90 minutes long. So patients get me (laughs) in the room with them for a long time so that we can really go over all the things that need to be known and so on. And unfortunately, this is really hard to do in the what we'll call the conventional medical practice. I understand that. And I guess that's a value for creating handouts and so on. But it's hard to say that a handout can replace a one-on-one conversation. Absolutely. But again, just kudos to you for seeing the need to make that time and actually doing it. I was <laughs> deep digging a bit on your website and when it was saying that it would be sometimes between 60 to 90 minutes of, quote, uninterrupted time to discuss your full medical history, all your questions, concerns, and that individualized health plan. My jaw almost dropped, to be completely honest, just (laughs) because we see a lot of times where it's in and out, in and out, and sometimes you spend more time with the nurse than even the primary practitioner. So what you're doing is incredible, and we're all for it on our end. Oh, well, thanks. And I do hear those stories where, you know, the nurse does almost all the history taking and then the doctor pops in literally for like one minute. I mean, it's like one minute and it's like an out the door again and you're allowed like no questions, maybe one. And I understand that they're under great pressure and many doctors now, the the majority now are employed by large entities where they um, have really limited control over the environment that they're working in now. And some different systems have longer and some shorter visits and different protocols that are put in place. So the nice thing about my practice is that I'm my own boss. I set the rules and I can make them or break them because there's no one I report to except myself. That's awesome. Definitely love the patient first approach. I think that lends us into our next question extremely well. Would you mind talking a bit about your pursuit in holistic healing and how you became one of the first dual board certified integrative gynecologists in the U.S.? Well, absolutely. My own story is even from the very beginning of my medical practice a few decades ago, I knew that there had to be more to helping women to optimize their health than just doing what I was trained to do, which is writing prescriptions and doing surgical procedures. But... um, you know, I didn't really personally get extra training in anything holistic or integrative until I actually stopped. And this was a very hard decision. I stopped doing obstetrics. But even back in the early days of my practice, although I had no like personal training in anything that was sort of out of the conventional, I brought people into my practice, which I called my the affiliates in my practice. And I had a psychologist, nutritionist, I had massage therapists, biofeedback. So I had Chinese medicine with acupuncture. I had all of this in my office for many, many years, going back to practically the very beginning of my practice, because I knew that we had to have a grander scheme of how we helped women to be healthy. And that uh, the therapeutic toolbox had to include, like I said, more than just prescription medications and surgical procedures. But it was after I stopped doing obstetrics, after 25 years of delivering thousands of babies, it was time to just move into a new realm of my, a new chapter in my career and get a little bit more sleep and a little bit less hectic, you know, lifestyle. 
And I guess maybe because I had more sleep and a little bit more free time at the, you know, when I gave up obstetrics, that I had time to actually give some additional thought to like, what was I doing? And what I did was I had all of the pharmaceutical reps that at that time, like there was a massive parade of pharmaceutical reps through my office telling me about their latest and greatest drug that they were promoting. And I said, show me the original studies that enabled this to be approved by the FDA. And when I looked at the actual studies, I was really taken aback by how little benefit actually accrued to the to the particular pharmaceutical, that it deviated from the you know, placebo minimally, but somehow it was just enough to reach what they call statistical significance. But like for certain things, like certain drugs for overactive bladder, that was sort of the rage at that time, that um, like it would reduce the number of visits to the bathroom to urinate like once in 24 hours. And I thought, you're taking a drug that has this really big array of side effects, like constipation and dry mouth and dementia <laughs> increased and all that. And you're doing it so you make one less trip to the bathroom. I mean, I think we need to do better than that. So, and I looked at the different drugs and all their side effects. And I said, you know what? I, I feel lost. I need more tools myself. And so I went on my own personal journey. I started taking courses with people I'd never heard of, like naturopaths and like, who are these people? But, you know, they seem to have an interesting approach. And at one point I ended up in a room where it was just myself and one other MD and everyone else was a naturopathic doctor. And it turns out the other MD was the director at that time of the fellowship in integrative medicine that was running through and in conjunction with the University of Arizona School of Medicine. And so I went up to her and I said, Dr. Lodog, I'm so lost. I'm taking different random courses, but I don't really feel like I have a cohesive plan here. And I know I have to learn more to help my patients than what I currently have. And I, I don't want to spend my whole rest of my career doing end-stage disease care, like end-stage meaning the disease is so bad that you need to cut organs out. You know, it's like, can I be more proactive? Can I find ways to help women before they actually need their organs removed? You know, I was really great at doing all the, the newest techniques in hysterectomies and ovarian removal and so forth. But it's like, can I just not take out all these organs and find ways to help preserve them and improve health and so on? So she said, well, after talking to me, I know you're qualified. Why don't you come and join my two-year fellowship in integrative medicine? And there's a new class about to start. So I went home that night. I filled out the application. And two weeks later, I was in Tucson. And I started and completed the two-year fellowship in integrative medicine. And I completed it over a decade ago, back in 2012. And I was like, you mentioned, I was one of the the few OBGYNs, very few people were taking it from my um, specialty area. And then it became a board certified subspecialty area, board certified just like any other board, like radiologists or emergency room docs. And it was official real board. I had to take a four hour exam and I had to qualify to take the exam and all kinds of things. And I became one of the first OBGYNs, I guess, in the country of the world that actually had that secondary board certification in addition to OBGYN. And I've never looked back and I just keep increasing my therapeutic toolbox, what I can do to help women. And I specialize in a lot of lifestyle medicine. And I 
do use, I'm not abandoning conventional medicine. I just see it in its place. So I'm not going to jump into, in a non-emergency situation, prescribing pharmaceuticals or surgery. When I can, I'm going to try to do things that are less aggressive, have fewer side effects, and all the side effects are actually benefits, you know? So like exercise, I may prescribe for weight loss and for strength, but one of the side benefits is people sleep better and they're happier. So, you know, we have side effects that are actually benefits instead of with pharmaceuticals where all the side effects are negatives, you know, so in, in general with rare exceptions. So I have, I just say, I haven't eliminated all the tools that I had previously. I've expanded my therapeutic options to incorporate the entire array of lifestyle medicine. That means I control work with stress and nutrition and fitness, avoidance of all the toxicants, polluting um, chemicals that interfere with our body's normal function. We promote sleep and sunlight and all the things that are ignored by conventional medicine. And I'm quite familiar with many, many herbs. So I wouldn't necessarily designate myself as an herbalist, but I have quite expansive knowledge of how to use what I call green medicine. So green medicine means that it's coming from something natural, and then it's concentrated in a way that you're trying to create a certain effect. Whereas pharmaceutical medicine is using a chemical that would never exist in nature, and then it's um, put in the body and it has a significant side effect profile. Now you can have side effects from green medicine too, but in general, the array of side effects are greater with pharmaceutical medicine, and, and you can use both. But I try to, when I have a choice, maybe try the green medicine first because it also is better for the environment because it degrades better. A lot of pharmaceuticals are building up in our environment and actually poisoning our wildlife. And we need to think about planet Earth too. So um, I have just this big array of um, herbal medications, nutraceuticals, like using um, appropriately targeted vitamins and minerals when they need to be added. Um, omega-3 and so forth, and all the lifestyle issues. And then, of course, hormones. That is my sort of super specialty, is understanding how hormones interact with the environment and stress, and of course, changes in aging in women, and how to try to balance them in younger women, and how to replace them in older women. Your training history is very impressive. I know Ireland and I are especially impressed by the whole emphasis on lifestyle medicine as well as green medicine. Well, we are, you know, speaking the same language. It just seems like integrative medicine really has the potential to be something so much bigger in the future. And I hope it continues to get more adopted by society as a whole because it seems like it's just combining conventional and alternative medicines in a very coordinated, systematic way that focuses on these evidence-based solutions. And it's also, it becomes so much more patient-focused, I think, from what we were hearing from you and your interactions. This whole picture is just, it's very promising, I think, for the world of medicine as a whole. Well, you're 100% right. And those of us in integrative medicine wish that it would just be called good medicine, that this is what everyone should practice. I mean, how can you be practicing medicine and not incorporate 
lifestyle and dealing with all the myriad effects of bad diet and sedentary lifestyle and stress and poor sleep habits? How can you ignore those things and not understand them and have the tools as a healthcare professional to address them? And we know that many pharmaceuticals are derived from things that occur naturally in nature, but you can't patent anything that is natural. So pharmaceutical companies have to modify them or they cannot patent them. So that's not of concern to us. So why can't we look at, like you said, the magic words, evidence-based use of green medicine and evidence-based use of stress management, mind-body medicine, which has really been shown to be essential if you're going to have a healthy body is to deal with stress, whether it's through guided meditation, other forms of meditation, um, tapping, I mean, acupuncture, body work, you know, massage, all of these can act as mind-body benefits, you know, for, for health, for massive improvements in overall health. And, you know, just looking at the environment that the person is living in, do they have an optimistic sort of outlook on life? Are they going to work where they're appreciated or they feel threatened in the home? You know, you can't take the person out of their environment and you really have to incorporate, well, what's going on in the home? Like you can't, I always call it the, the family healthcare unit. Like every mom knows this. If you're a mom and your child is having healthcare problems or you're a partner of yours is having healthcare challenges, it's going to affect your health. So you have to look at the total person, and that includes the total family and their environment and their work life. And that's what we do in integrative medicine, because you can't just look at one organ in isolation, which is so often the way conventional medicine is practiced. It's like, I'm only about this one organ. It's like, come on, the organ is in the body, the body's in the society and the family and the home and, and you know everything. So that's integrative medicine. We just want those of us in this field to become just good medicine. And that's the kind of medicine that is practiced universally. That's what we're aiming for. I love what you said about calling it good medicine. I think it recognizes that there's a time and a place for everything. If someone came in appendicitis, right? You're not going to say, oh, let's try and treat them naturally if we can. Like there's a time and a place for surgeries and and medications even, but why not try and do it in the holistic, in the most holistic way possible? So I guess to go into our next question off of that, although like we said, there may be times when medical interventions are necessary, we're thoroughly impressed with your dedication to prescribe diet and lifestyle changes and how has this changed the scope of OBGYN care for your patients? And how do you see it affecting care in the future? Well, it's it's hugely affecting. And I'm always so thrilled when I see research to support additionally, you know, what we're doing. So for example, if we look at some of the conditions that reproductive aged women are facing and how now we have published data, evidence-based medicine to show that lifestyle can be of tremendous benefit. So if you take like endometriosis, I've had some patients recently with endometriosis. It's like 10% of the reproductive aged women population has this very terrible condition, which can cause infertility and chronic pain and often leads to medication that gets rid of ovarian function and all the ovarian hormones and can lead to surgery. Well, there's been now research that going on a plant-based diet and working to lower stress 
can have a significant impact. And of course, the opposite is true as well. If you eat lots of processed food and lots of um, like confined feedlot animals and you live a stressed life, that is terrible. In fact, the circadian rhythm, that's like the 24-hour rhythm of our bodies, which is in beautiful synchrony with the 24-hour rotation of our planet Earth around, you know, on its axis. Well, it turns out if you have circadian rhythm dysfunction, for example, you're constantly flying across time zones, you work half the time in the middle of the night, half the time you're working the day shift, you know, you um, stay up late at night for whatever reason, or you have, you know, disruptions throughout the night for whatever reason, those are stimuli to disrupting your circadian rhythm, and that can worsen endometriosis. None of this has anything to do with taking a drug, okay, or surgery. So there are so many things that can lower pain and lower progression of endometriosis and help to prevent it in the first place or reduce its severity in women who have say, family history and have some genetic predisposition. And as well, there's evidence to show that endocrine disruptors, like chemicals, like pesticides, and the most research has been with dioxins, they can interfere with the receptor function of the vital hormone progesterone. And so we need to lower toxicant exposures, you know, these chemicals and try to avoid like spraying pesticide around your home and trying to buy organic fruits and vegetables as much as humanly possible because pesticides are shown to be a part of the ideological causation of endometriosis. So that's like one. And then what about polycystic ovary syndrome? It's been shown that exposures to BPA, bisphenol A, which is a xenoestrogen, it's a chemical in hard plastics and um, can liners, cash register receipts, and so on. It's very prevalent. In fact, everyone has some BPA in them that this particular chemical can concentrate in the fetus in pregnant women and then interrupt the normal um, establishment of the endocrine system. And so their estrogen receptors don't work properly. And then as well after when they're growing up, if they eat what is called a SAD diet, standard American diet, where they're eating a lot of processed foods and they have nutrient deficiencies because they're not eating a lot of whole, whole foods, you know, whole grains, beans, lentils, all kinds of plants, fruits, vegetables, and so on, nuts and seeds, that their diet is deficient in that. And it's like overwhelmingly with processed food and high fructose corn syrup and colors and preservatives, that creates leaky gut. And that increases inflammation and insulin resistance and obesity and menstrual dysfunction, infertility, cardiovascular problems, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance increases diabetes risk. These are lifestyle choices. Um, you know, obviously you have to have the knowledge and then you have to do everything in your power to reverse this through other lifestyle choices. And, you know, we can't change history. We can't change everything but we can do better. Like, are we curing everything? No, but are we doing better than what a lot of the conventional approaches are? Absolutely. And this is just the whole lifestyle approach for women with these most common problems involving reproduction uh, you know, and affecting fertility, but not just that. It affects quality of life and even potentially longevity. So these are not small matters. And, and even we now know that the diet a woman eats can affect her vaginal health. And chronic vaginitis is such a chronic problem. 
And, you know, the choice of, you know, clothing fabrics and toilet paper and, you know, what kind of tampons you use and all of these things can affect vaginitis. And like I mentioned, even diet. So people eat a lot of foods that are very high in sugar. It can actually cause changes in the gut microbiome and the gut microbiome can also impact the vaginal microbiome. So it's like amazing how we can impact like all the things that women come in to see their gynecologist for. We can beneficially impact through integrative medicine and not just by giving pharmaceuticals. I'm not saying like, I'm totally agreeing with what you said there. I'm, we're not shunning conventional medicine. We see the miracles that can happen with some of the, the greatest, best techniques for saving people that are like, like who have a stroke or in the middle of a heart attack with stents and, and life-saving drugs for different types of cancers and so on, immunotherapies for people who have cancer and for certain autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis that now we have much better treatments for. So there's definitely a place for modern medicine, but much of the healthcare that's delivered is not for such things. It's for chronic conditions that are treated with like the wrong things and not including the lifestyle. So I would say virtually everything that I deal with and like migraines, which 80% of migraines are among women and menstrual migraines can be all impacted in a very beneficial way through lifestyle changes. So uh, it's just amazing. I would say virtually every healthcare issue that a gynecologist sees can be benefited through the integrative approach. And then of course, same thing with menopause and because everything in menopause requires in order to be healthy after loss of your ovarian hormones, you've got to pull every trick out of the hat, which means you've got to incorporate every single lifestyle tool that we have and that includes often green medicine and all the lifestyle things that I've touched on to optimize health after ovarian function is lost. That's so wonderful. To dive a bit into that gut of vaginal microbiota connection. So we know that keeping the vaginal flora balanced is imperative to protect against infection at all stages of life. How can incorporating a probiotic combat reduced microbial diversity that may result from changes in hormone levels? And do you recommend probiotics to your patients typically? Well, I think there's definitely a role for probiotics. It's an area that is still under active research, you know, and there's so much more that we need to know. In terms of the gut microbiome, that's like the biggest microbiome of the body. And it has trillions of bacteria, thousands of different species. And now that we have genetic testing, we're not just doing cultures, we are learning so much more about it and the uniqueness for different people. And also that it is definitely hormonally related. We know, for example, the microbiome in the gut changes during pregnancy and it, it's very, very unique and it, it always will change when you have pregnancy. It changes when women transition into the menopause and so we need to really work because these are conditions that can lead to more, you know, more incidents of leaky gut. That's like impaired gut barrier. And we know that what goes on in the gut affects everything in the body. It's like the control center we now understand. And the gut microbiome comes out, you know, when you have a poop. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of the weight of, of our stool is actually 
bacteria. That's why if someone has little bitty stools that look like little rabbit pellets, I mean, clearly they have a deficient diet in terms of fiber because that's what grows. That's the food of bacteria. So a, a high fiber diet with lots of plants is essential to have a robust and healthy gut microbiome. And the health of the gut microbiome does translate into the health of the vaginal microbiome. So there is that, although they're different microbiomes, like everything in the body, there's an interconnection because the skin has its own microbiome and you don't want it to be um, fully you know, incorporating bacteria that are like all the, the ones from the, the colon, which are like E. coli and Klebsiella. You want the, like the, what we call the commensals, the good bacteria on the skin of the vulva and then inside the, the inside of the vagina to help protect against invasion and colonization where the, the colon bacteria come and thrive in the wrong places. And for that to happen, you have to have not have aggressive, hostile colon bacteria either. And of course, you need to have proper nutrition so that you have a healthy functioning immune system so that you can fight off um, the bad bacteria. And then you need a healthy hormonal balance because it's the estrogen that actually maintains the health of the vaginal microbiome because like we know that we feed the gut microbiome by eating plant foods but what about the vaginal microbiome we're not putting food up in there so where's where's the food these are living cells they need food so the vaginal microbiome gets food by the lining cells of the vagina <clears throat> when they have adequate estrogen those cells make glycogen, which is like a form of storage of starch. And that acts as food. It gets secreted from the vaginal lining cells into the lumen, the opening of the vagina. And it serves as food, fiber food to be um, used and fermented by the vaginal microbiome. And when they ferment it, they make lactic acid, which acidifies and gets the right pH, which is a low pH in the vagina which helps kill off the bad bacteria and helps the good guys, which are predominantly lactobacilli in the lower portion of the vagina to thrive. I mean, so it's a very complex environment, that vagina of ours. And, you know, if we have the right amount of estrogen, if we have the right diet, and then we are careful about maybe not using tampons that are not organic and maybe taking a break from using anything intravaginal and just using like an organic external pad at night so that we don't actually introduce the wrong bacteria or air up into the top of the vagina, which doesn't like air normally. And it grows different bacteria at the top of the vagina than at the bottom portion. It's a really complex and we're just learning, but a hundred percent, your diet impacts your vagina and sugar, lots of sugar coming out like in diabetics can increase infections. So that's why it's so important not to eat a lot of foods that are like with added sugar. And I always like to just use this motto, don't be afraid of fruit. So the sugar so-called in fruit is not the same as the sugar in high fructose corn syrup and in processed food. So fruit comes with a whole array of polyphenols and fiber and vitamins and minerals and so it's a totally different creature. Like don't get mixed up and, and think that they're all the same. Okay, so, so I have this little mouth. Don't be afraid of fruit. That doesn't mean that's your whole diet, but 
everyone should incorporate some fruit with their meals, with their meals. And that's not going to wreak havoc with your blood sugar or anything like that. And you're going to get a lot of health benefits from eating fresh fruit. So definitely diet is huge for vaginal microbiome and gut microbiome. And uh, the vaginal microbiome is like still now the great new frontier for female health because it's so it's so, been so ignored. And when women get vaginal infections, the entire approach has always been, and still is, killing. I call it like a killing spree. They put, you know, you put intravaginal and sometimes taking oral, you take antimicrobial agents, antifungals, antibacterial, like antibiotics, and you go on a killing spree. And some people use real killers like boric acid, which is like, putting, you know, putting poison in the vagina, like kills everything. So we can't just go on a killing spree. We have to go on a nurturing spree. So you've got to do what you can to reestablish a healthy vaginal environment to encourage good bacteria. And we can't just go and kill, 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 which has been the traditional approach. It would be like every time you have an ant that you see in your house, you take like enormous quantities of pesticides and these bombs and things, and you just set them off everywhere. You can't like try to kill one ant by pouring pesticides all over your house, you know? So we can't just deal with every vaginal infection by, you know, endless amounts of antimicrobial agents because you're killing the good and the bad. And then you're going to be left with a desert environment in there because you're going to kill off all the good guys. And that's a huge problem. And that's been addressed in the gut. They're trying to do things like fecal transplants from healthy people. You can, have, you know, it's hard to find them, but people who have really healthy guts and then taking their stool, their poops and transplanting them into the unhealthy person. And there's actually been talk of doing vaginal microbiome transplants for women who've had chronic infections that are unremitting and they've been treated with all the killers, all the antimicrobials over and over. So all the good guys have been eradicated and we don't know how to bring them back to life. So taking a, a healthy woman's vaginal secretions and putting them into the unhealthy woman's vagina may ultimately be the secret sauce, if you can call it, to help reestablish a healthy vaginal microbiome, just like there's hope that fecal transplants, and then we have, but we have to stop this killing spree, you know, with antibiotics, whether they're oral, whether they're intravaginal, for pretty much everything, we should really restrict antimicrobials when they're essential and not treat them like, you know, like you can just put them on anything, like, because they're not harmless. It's really important to know that they're killing our good microbiomes out. It sounds like the gut really is the powerhouse of the body and there's so many connections to it that we, I think, tend to ignore. So that was full of great insight. So thank you so much for sharing that. We've absolutely enjoyed having you on the podcast and we want to give you this opportunity to share anything else that we may have missed Ask. Well, I think that to understand that our bodies need certain very basic things. And there is simply no substitute, you know? We can't change how we're genetically programmed. We are earthlings, so, and we are diurnal. So we are designed to be awake in the day and asleep at night. We are designed to eat real food, not processed food. Our bodies are designed to move, not to just sit endlessly. We need sunlight, and we know that we need friendship and love and companionship. In fact, in elderly, they've done studies showing 
the biggest risk to having a heart attack and dying isn't high blood pressure, it's loneliness. So we are very social creatures. So the first step in terms of maintaining health is to understand the basics of being a human and what we need, and that it's giving the body the right things that we talked about, and that when you're ill, even if you need surgery, even if you need a drug, to not let that be the only thing you do, that you incorporate all of the lifestyle options that are there for you to really help. You know, I help women who have surgery to recover faster and to lower pain so they don't need so many pain pills. And what if they have need joint replacements and so on, we have our patients heal so much faster. So don't underestimate the power of the body. But in order for that power to be manifest, it needs to be cared for lovingly at every stage of life. That was so well said. Thank you so much again for taking the time. This was such an incredible episode and I know so insightful for the both of us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.